Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. We're glad you joined us today. We have a great show lined up where we're going to be talking about things like... um, well, you rebalancing. Know, rebalancing. That's exciting, isn't it, John? Yeah, well, it's been an exciting week. <laughs> it has been <laughs> an exciting week, so yeah. it might be time to rebalance. Yeah. And that's why we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to talk about budgeting, another exciting topic, John. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's very, very important, and it's amazing how many people can't get this right. And there's so many tools out there now. So we're going to talk about some of the apps some of the tools and some of the strategies mm. to help you get that right in your life. So very important show here. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 23 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. And we are excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast. You can listen to it from the website. We also have a lot of videos, a lot of tools. Uh, go check those out uh, from retirement planning to uh, looking at college majors. And uh, we have a Facebook account as well that we post a video weekly and uh, tweeting. And so a lot of different ways we're out there. Absolutely. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net, or you can link to us right off our website, moneymd.net. Well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. This comes from a Trends America Retirement Survey, and a pretty interesting stat here, Steve. Millennials who are between ages of 20 and 36 were surveyed back in 2017, and about 20% of them have their retirement money invested in cash and bonds. Wow, that's Very not Very conservative good. stance. That's, that's surprising. And there were only 19% who were 100% in the market. And um, so that means, you know, there's there's 81% of those folks that have some level of cash and bonds. Generally, uh, you know, you're that young. Um, you're 20-plus years out from needing that money. Right. Great time to be aggressive. Yeah, they should probably have 100% in cash at that point, or, or stocks. in stocks yeah. and equities at that point, invested not 100% in cash, um, is the other side of the coin. You wonder why that is. You wonder if maybe they, you know, lived through the financial crisis and they, they missed the uh, the 90s, the late 90s when the markets did so well, and they're just not, at, they're a little bit scared of the market and don't trust it, maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting fact of the week, though, so... Um, Hopefully they're listening and can fix that problem because they need to have majority of their assets in their retirement assets in equities for sure. All right. And that brings us up to our first topic here, and that is the benefits of rebalancing. Yeah, this is a good good topic by a gentleman, Roger Woller, Wolner, um, had some input on this. And, um, you know, Steve, looking uh, at last year in 2017, I mean, the markets did very well. I mean, uh, yep. you know, international was up uh, 20 plus percent, uh, S&P 500 and small stocks were up in the high teens and so forth. And wish, you know, that, wish that were the case this year. That's right. This this year, 2018, certainly has started out a bit differently. And as we've seen this last week, um, it's it's been, been a, a challenging year. The S&P 500 um, does have a gain, um, although it's been dramatically uh, decreased this last week, as has the NASDAQ. And the internationals um, are, are really down this year. They've had a, a very tough year 
whereas last year they were up uh, as a group, you know, 25, 28% roughly. So certainly been a bumpy ride at times. Um, markets are experiencing some wild swings uh, this year. Um, you know, after, you know, remember it peaked in January and then we had the correction in February. That's right. You know, maybe he- heading in that same direction. Yeah, we're seeing markets down a lot this past week. So you never know. Um what the future holds and, and kind of what the year is going to wind up being looking like. But the Russell 2000 index, which tracks small cap stocks, John, it hit new highs, um, you know, right before this pullback this past week. And many tech stocks had done really well so far this year as well um, until last week. So, you know, the kind of uneven performance in the markets may have caused your portfolio to stray off target allocation. Um, Years like this that are very volatile do tend to leave part of your portfolio looking good while the other part of the portfolio is down, meaning that you now own a larger percentage of that piece that has done relatively well. Um, So now you may be taking more risk than you really should be um, or less risk, you know, depending on your situation. So if you haven't done so, this may be a great time to consider rebalancing your investments. And so here are four benefits from rebalancing your portfolio. Yeah, the first one here is just balancing the risk and reward trade-off. I mean, asset allocation really is about about balancing that risk um, and the reward that you have in the equities. And invariably, there are going to be some asset classes that perform better than others, and this can certainly cause your portfolio to be skewed toward an allocation that's um, too too risky for what you originally signed up for. Maybe there's not enough risk. Um, based on your financial objectives. And, you know, what we see, Steve, is during robust periods of the market, um, you know, equities will outperform, you know, fixed income, right? So maybe you signed up initially as a, you know, 65% in stocks and and 35% in bonds and cash, and the market has done really well, which we saw in 2017. And maybe now you're at 75% stocks and 25% in fixed income. Well, you know, that's that's more than more risk than you signed up for. So uh, that would be a great time to uh, take a look at it and maybe, um, you know, make a change and do a rebalance associated with that to try to get you back in, in into tolerance. So at the core of what rebalancing is, is just making sure that your risk reward trade-off is where you want it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Pretty- you want to make sure that you're, you're in the right <laughs> allocation for your comfort level, but also for your time horizon. And that gets out of whack over time. So you you got to rebalance to get back on track. Yeah, the other thing is it, it enforces a level of discipline. I mean, rebalances really, you know, uh, imposes a level of discipline in terms of selling a portion of your winners and putting that money back into asset classes that have underperformed. I mean, it may seem counterintuitive, but you hear that, you know, sell high, buy low mentality. That's what rebalancing does. And, um, you know, during the first decade of this century, emerging market equities did really, really well. And the last couple of years, not so much. Um, Now, 2017, emerging markets did fantastic. This year, they're down. So there's always going to be changes in the asset classes. That's why we diversify, because we don't know which ones are going to do well this year or next year. That's right. And years like this year, you may feel, uh, you may regret that you're diversified because you may see the Dow and say, wow, the Dow's up, you know, I don't know, 10% this year. It was maybe a week ago. Um, And your portfolio, undoubtedly, if you're diversified, is nowhere close to that. You know, it might even be down because internationals are down so much and small stocks haven't done as well. So, um, but, you know, rebalancing, you got to have discipline and rebalancing saves investors. It will save you from your worst instincts because it's often tempting in times like this to let your top performing holdings 
and asset classes continue to grow and let them continue to go up without rebalancing them. And then before you know it, you know, you, you have more large caps than you meant to have. Um, those, you know, if you have individual stocks, those individual stocks have gotten to be a huge part of your overall holdings. Um, and then you're going to find out that the risk of this approach is great whenever you have the market correct um, or you have the, you know, a big drop like the dot-com bubble when it burst in the early 2000s and the NASDAQ lost 70% of its value. There were so many investors I ran into that came to see me and they had a portfolio that was just loaded with tech stocks that had just been decimated. And it took over 10 years for that that index to come back and and, and make that up. So, you know, you can't let that happen. You have to stay diversified. Yeah. So, uh, you know, having a, a rebalancing kind of something that's done on a periodic basis really gives you a good reason to review your portfolio. Um, when considering portfolio rebalancing, you know, investors really should incorporate a, a full review of their portfolio that looks at the individual holdings, looks at the you know validity of the investment strategy, and some questions that you should ask are, you know, if you do have individual stock holdings, have they hit your growth target? Um, if you have mutual funds, you know, how are they performing uh, relative to other mutual funds in their industry? What, how about their style consistency? A lot of mutual funds will say they invest in growth stocks, but they don't. They have maybe some, but they have other you know, types of assets in there as well. So take a look at your mutual funds, see if there's been significant inflows or outflows, you know, look at the managers associated with the funds. Um, you know, this is not easy to do either, by the way. That's right. I mean, so this is for us, for our clients, we look at this on a, on a quarterly basis, but you should be doing this at least annually and making some adjustments based on the performance, the underlying performance of your, of your, you know, securities. Yeah, there's a lot of information to digest and make those kind of decisions, and most people aren't equipped to do that. Um, but, you know, rebalancing also helps you to stay on track with your financial plan. John, you know, investing success is not a goal unto itself, but regular, rather it's a tool to help ensure that you meet your financial goals and your retirement objectives down the road. Um, so, you know, listeners of our show know that we're big proponents of having a financial plan, a retirement plan in place. And, you know, these plans expect to have good years. They expect to have flat years and yes, even down years. So when that happens, it doesn't crash the long-term plan. So rebalancing your portfolio, um, is a tool to help keep you on track for your long-term plan and your long-term plan is the real end result that you're looking for. It's not your investments per se. You want to make sure you stay on track. So regardless of whether you're keeping up with the Dow or the S&P 500 this year or the NASDAQ or a few stocks that you you look at, um, the real important question is, are you on track for retirement? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, you know, the, the key is having a process as well. I mean, I, I talk to folks about this all the time, but Markets are, are down this last week. If you need income from your portfolio, you, know, you can just pull it from the bond side of it, right? You can leave some of those stocks yeah. alone. Exactly, yeah. And, if and you if, have fixed income. That's right. And if you're investing money, you know, good time to invest. You put it into something that's low. So, you know, these gyrations that we have in the market, as long as you have a process to handle them, you can get through them um, fairly easily. It may take a little couple months to get through some of these gyrations, but bottom line is, is, you know, regular portfolio rebalancing really helps to reduce downside investment risk and ensures that your investments are allocated in line with your financial plan. So, um, you know, it, it helps with the discipline. I remember, 
Steve, I started here back in 2007, but in 2008, when the markets were down so much, I think it was October the 14th of 2008, the markets were down that month, like 20%. Yeah. We did rebalancing in the middle of that month, just because that's when it was scheduled to be done. Yep. And we yep. actually ended up buying equities, and that was a really good buy. It was. So, it was, yeah. Starting March of 2009, equities shot up, and we owned more shares <laughs> of those funds that we rebalanced into, and that helped the recovery considerably. And that's that's one of the benefits of rebalancing. Yeah, that's right. It's a great example. All right, and a good topic. And that leads us up here, though, to our question of the week. Yeah, this question uh, was from a client uh, recently wanting to uh, gift their, their kids. Uh, they have um, three kids, and they had already given one child some uh, inheritance, and they wanted to, to gift out of their IRA. And um, they were talking about taxes, didn't think there would really be a lot of taxes because they were being gifted to their kids. But so the question is, you know, are there any taxes associated with gifting? And, <laughs> you know, you know, pulling out of an IRA the you know, the tax man is going to cometh for the, yes. for the bill. So, um, one of the discussions, you know, we're here in October and the question is, is, you know, can you, you know, cause it's about a hundred thousand, they want to gift, um, 50 to each, each child. And uh, maybe we pull half of it now and half of it in January to try to spread it over two years and keep them in a lower tax bracket. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not the gift itself that's going to incur any taxes. Yes, you can gift money to your kids without incurring taxes. You may have to file a gift tax return if it's over the annual limit, um, which I believe is 14000 a year per person to per each, spouse, each right. per spouse. Um, however... Um, you know, there's a big exemption for gift taxes, so you're not going to pay gift taxes. It's income taxes you're worried about, mm-hmm. and to gift an IRA, you have to take money out of your IRA before you can gift it. You can't just change the name of the IRA to your to your kids. Right. You know, it right. has to come out. Um, so you may want to look at gifting after-tax money instead. You can gift them, like, st- appreciated stocks. You could gift them appreciated mutual fund shares without uh, realizing the gains on that, but then, of course, they will— they will take over the cost basis of those shares if you do that. Um, so it's a little more complicated, but if you have several portfolios, several accounts you can pull it from, uh, it's a good question, and there might be a more efficient tax way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spreading it out sometimes is a is a strategy because you're putting it into two different tax years. So Yeah, and your kids may be in a zero long-term capital gains bracket, so you can gift them uh, shares of mutual funds. And they may be able to sell them without paying any taxes. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's a great question. So you want to make sure you look at all your options there. Good question of the week. And that leads us up to our next topic here, and that is budgeting strategies to escape the overspending trap. Um, yeah, John, you know, many Americans have an overspending problem, and it's not limited to the lower income levels like most people think. I mean, it really doesn't matter whether you make $30,000 a year or $500,000 a year. People have the same challenges of overspending regardless of their income level. Yes, it is a lot easier to live off of, you know, a quarter million dollars a year or whatever your, you know, a higher income person's income is. But they still are tempted to, to buy too much. And it's all relative. You know, you can spend too much regardless of how much you make. And once you get into that debt trap <clears throat> and you're trapped by other obligations, it becomes very difficult to escape it. And in today's world of, of, of the one-click, you know, purchasing on Amazon and, you know, it's just really easy to get in the habit of buying a lot of things you don't need. 
And credit is also very plentiful. So you can run up a dozen credit cards on top of massive student loans in a hurry. And we've seen it all. We see this pretty Mm -hmm. routinely. Um, In fact, you know, one tidbit here about a... a, uh, uh, a current affair, you know, if you recall, Nikki Haley um, announced her resignation this past week mm-hmm. from the Trump administration as the U.N. ambassador this week. And I was surprised to read that one of the reasons that they were speculating that she was resigning was debt and her need to cash in on her popularity and make a lot more money. Um, they, because they reported that despite her $170,000 joint income with her husband, she had credit card debt that was very significant. She had a mortgage over a million dollars. She had a line of credit of between a quarter and a half million dollars. Um, so that's certainly not a great picture, even for somebody in that income range. Um, you know, so overspending is a universal problem. It is not not limited to people with lower incomes. Yeah. So step one is is face the facts, and uh, you got to write things down. Be honest with yourself. It's not easy, but you have to take a hard look at at all your spending. That really means identifying everything you spent in the last few months, looking at housing and food, gas, entertainment, really everything. you got to have the courage to look at the details and make some changes. A lot of people don't want to face the, the pain of the, the numbers they're looking at. It's kind of like when you get on the scales after you've had a bad week of eating too much, and you don't want to do it, but if you don't, then you never get motivated to change, and it continues to, to spiral out of control. So something you just got to recognize. And there are people that can help with this as well. Dave Ramsey has some counselors that can help you with budgeting. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And there's a, there's a lot of apps you can use too that really make it a lot easier. You know, like you mentioned, Ramsey has the the every dollar app um, on his website, but there's also mint.com. There's one called level money, personal capital, one called Dolly, uh, wally.me.me. Um, so, you know, your online account at your bank or even your credit card company will often have an app <clears throat> that allows you to sort your expenses by merchant or category and, and, and put those in a different category so you can see where it's all going. Um, and these can really do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. So once you know exactly where all your money is going, it's a lot easier to get serious and identify the potential areas to cut back and to set priorities. So you may be surprised to find that there are some there is some low hanging fruit potentially in your budget that's not too painful to cut, like maybe that gym membership that you're no longer using or maybe dropping comprehensive insurance coverage on an older car um, that's no longer benefiting you much. Um, so once you know how much money you're taking in and where it's all going, then it's time to create a budget. Budgeting is one of the key components to managing money, especially when you're trying to pay down credit cards. There is no one-size-fits-all type budget. Um, There are many different strategies out there to to consider. So you need to find one that you think will work for you and try it. And if it doesn't work, ask yourself why and then find another one that fills the gap. So here are some of the most popular budgeting strategies out there that can help you rein in your spending and better manage your money from the simple budgets to the more complex ones. Yeah, one other note on uh, uh, apps, uh, there's something called YNAB, You Need a Budget. Um, I have a couple clients that are using that okay. that rave about it. So YNAB is another good one there. So, But to, to your point, Steve, there's a, a, a method here. It's called 50-30-20 budget. It's very simple. 50% of your take-home pay goes to needs. 
30% goes to wants and 20% goes to debt and savings. And you got to throw giving in there somewhere. I don't know where that would fall on this. But, um, you know, the hard part for some beginners is determining a need from a want. 50% to cover essentials, housing, food, utilities, transportation. 30% is for extras, like uh, dining out and travel and cell phone. Maybe that's where the... Um, I think the, you probably want to get the giving in the need side, but, um, you know, that's certainly right. a personal decision. And the 20% then would be the, for debt payments and, um, you know, savings in your get ahead bucket. So this is a best fit for maybe first time budgeters and young people with uh, straightforward expenses. So 50, 30, 20. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a simple one. And by the way, these all come out of an article from CNN money. Um, pretty recently, Catherine Vassell is the author of this. So we didn't, we didn't make these up, but, um, and so yeah, giving does need to be in all these as well, as you mentioned, John, as one of the items, but the next one they list here is the, called the top down budget. So how does that work? Um, so you're the CEO of you Inc. Okay. You're setting the percentages of your take home pay devoted to the priorities that you choose. So, you know, I asked the CEO, you have to choose the categories, um, that are more specific than the um, 50, 30, 20 budget, um, like groceries, clothing, internet, you know, gas, din- dining out, um, all of those categories, you need to break it down. And so this top-down budget breaks down all the categories, um, but you're still focused on the big ideas like wanting to retire with 85% of your income at age 60, um, maybe taking three vacations this summer. You know, that would have been a good one. Um, You know, with a top-down budget, you'll be able to kind of arrange your spending and your savings to reach your goals. Um, This is more of a best fit for people with specific savings goals. So you break down your budget into a lot of different categories, um, and you start start allocating money to each of those categories individually. From the top down, um, you know, starting with the most important, you know, the the needs, the things that you absolutely have to have, and then you go down to the discretionary items as well. Yeah, another uh, approach, Steve, is a bottom-up budget. And, um, you know, rather than beginning at the top with the big-picture goal, you start with the actual cost of your daily expenses. Bottom-up is, is a way to go for people who already have locked into some pretty big expenses, like a mortgage. Um, you know, transportation costs, um, you know, children that, you know, include diapers and childcare and so forth. But if you have some items that, that you don't have a say on, you can start with those and then build it up from the bottom. So, um, that, that's a reasonable approach. Yeah. And those expenses will be more difficult to change than curbing, you know, how many margaritas, you know, you're grabbing with your friends. So, uh, a bottom up budget includes those costs. Um, from the beginnings and, and, you know, shows you what you have remaining whenever it's all done. So you start with your needs and the really important stuff that you can't change and you kind of work your way up to the things that are discretionary um, from the bottom, as you mentioned. Um, and then from there, you can work to curb your expenses and set savings goals. So this is kind of a best fit for people with existing heavy fixed expenses, maybe a big mortgage, um, some big obligations out there and those looking to kind of better understand where their spending is going and how much they have left that they can uh, have some discretion with. The next budget on the list is a zero-sum budget. Um, so how that goes, John, is you give each dollar a job. You pay yourself first by allocating your first dollars to your debts, um, giving or your savings goals, 
And then you place each dollar in your monthly income to an allocated space so that you're left with zero. So it's a zero-sum budget. Everything adds up. And maybe, you know, a bit of it, you know, comes into a surplus for your checking or goes into savings. You certainly want to have a savings category in there. But by basing next month's budget on last month's expenses and income, you'll have a real-time picture of where your spending goes. So you're adjusting this every single month based on what's actually been spent. Um, so this is kind of a pretty intense budget, <clears throat> and you keep adjusting it. But be warned, you know, it's very hands-on. Um, it's a good for people who want to track their <clears throat> their metrics of their spending. Um, it's kind of a best fit for real detail-oriented people who really get into budgeting, those with high fixed expenses who have a hard time controlling their spending. Um, so you're looking at it every single month and adjusting your budget every single month. The next one here on the list is called the reverse budget. So how does that work? It's like a zero-sum budget, but then you but you pay yourself first. So rather than focusing on categories, you, you specify savings goals. And once you've set aside your savings, the rest of your money kind of trickles down to cover the basics like housing, food, all the extras. So it's zero. It's similar to the other budgets, um, the bottom-up budget, but but you start with your savings goal as your first allocated money, and then uh, the re as your money trickles down to cover the basics, then you have extra that can be used for discretionary expenses from month to month, and then at the end of your budget, it's gonna it's gonna be zero. So it's gonna you know work out where you're allocating all of your money. So if you're still counting pennies each month. Um, you know, work up uh, up to this one. This budget works best for people who have some financial cushion who want to push themselves to reach specific savings goals. Um, this is a best fit for the budget savvy type person and those with specific financial goals. Yeah, and the last uh, you know suggestion here is an envelope budget, and um, this is uh, something Dave talks about a lot. Set aside an envelope for each spending category. Gas, groceries, utilities, rent, and uh, once you've spent what's in the envelope, you're done. You can't spend any more in that category, and this works best for people who don't mind spending cash, and um, you know it can really help you uh, kind of rein in your spending on going out or groceries or some things that you have some discretion in. So um, if you can't cut your spending without some physical limits, then the envelope may be a good solution for you. Yeah, and you may use a hybrid of these systems. You may have the envelope budget for your discretionary expenses and for eating out and those kinds of things where you put the cash in the envelope every month, and when it's gone, it's gone. And then you may use a more, a more uh, you know, detailed-type budget that just keeps track of your, of your fixed expenses. So you can use a hybrid of these. But, you know, once you've landed on a budget system that you believe will work for you, then it's time to get started by creating the budget, tracking your expenses. After about three months of using the system, it should become obvious if you're on track or you need to make changes to get on track. Fortunately, you now have all the information once you have this system in place to make those changes to set your priorities. Um, so and you need to evaluate the areas where you need to make adjustments and start making the decisions of where to trim. Keep in mind, most budgets don't account for around 10% of your spending due to the cash expenditures and the unexpected one-time expenditures. Um, that means that you're going to need about a 10% cushion in most budgets to give you a reasonable chance for it to work. Um, but the important thing is to get started. Get started now. And if you have questions or need help evaluating a budget, then give us a call. 
All right, and that leads us up to our last thing here, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, this uh, prescription is to, um, if you haven't tried Uber or Lyft lately, uh, check it out. I, I traveled uh, recently, and uh, my, my daughter helped me get these apps. And I've, uh, you know, I don't travel a lot, but um, I always use a taxi. And my first experience, uh, well, I flew into the airport and I used a taxi because I didn't didn't feel comfortable with using an Uber right. at that point. And um, so when I came back to the airport, I did use an Uber and I saved about twenty five percent from what the taxi was. So if yeah. you haven't tried the Uber or Lyft, it's uh, it's pretty easy. Once you get the app set up, and, very um, easy. Yeah. yeah, you just key just, in where you're going to go, and they you see a little car coming towards you. It tells you who it is. It gives you a picture. It gives you their uh, tag number. It gives you ratings and everything. But it is cheaper than taxis. Yeah, in most you, places, at least the place I was. That's right. And you know, besides being cheaper, I mean, you don't have to worry about paying the driver. Mm-hmm. You know that, and you don't have to worry about the driver. You know, scamming you. You know, I've been to. I've gotten in a taxi before, and the driver tried to overcharge you. Um, so you don't have to worry about all that because it's done online. It's automatic. You know, it's based on how far you go. And, uh, you know, it, it's like you said, it's very easy and it's faster. Typically, if you're in a big city, it's faster because if you're at an airport and you're trying to get a taxi, you have to get in the taxi line. And that can take a long time some places. Mm-hmm. You know, I've waited 30 minutes for a taxi before when we could have gotten Uber like super fast. Yep. So, <laughs> so it's a great thing. You got to try that. No doubt good uh, prescription of the week and that brings us to a close for this week's edition of money md tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health check us out on our website moneymd.net and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at richard young associates at 706-739-0725 thanks for listening and have a great rest of the week have a good one this program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Gang Associates, a registered investment advisor. 